Section 7 of Marion Fay by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Volume 1, Chapter 7 The Post Office. When George Roden came home that evening, the matter was discussed between him and his mother at great length. She was eager with him, if not to abandon his love, at any rate to understand how impossible it was that he should marry Lady Frances. She was very tender with him, full of feeling, full of compassion and sympathy, but she was persistent in declaring that no good could come from such an engagement. But he would not be deterred in the least from his resolution nor would he accept it as possible that he should be turned from his object by the wishes of any person as long as lady frances was true to him you speak as if daughters were slaves he said so they are so women must be slaves to the conventions of the world a young woman can hardly run counter to her family on a question of marriage she may be persistent enough to overcome objections, but that will be because the objections themselves are not strong enough to stand against her. But here the objections will be very strong. We will see, mother, he said. She, who knew him well, perceived that it would be vain to talk to him further. Oh, yes, he said. I will go out to Hendon, perhaps on Sunday. That Mr. Vivian is a pleasant fellow, and, as Hampstead does not wish to quarrel with me, I certainly will not quarrel with him. Roden was generally popular at his office, and had contrived to make his occupation there pleasant to himself and interesting. But he had his little troubles, as will happen to most men in all walks of life. His came to him chiefly from the ill manners of a fellow clerk who sat in the same room with him, and at the same desk. There were five who occupied the apartment, an elderly gentleman and four youngsters. The elderly gentleman was a quiet, civil, dull old man who never made himself disagreeable and was content to put up with the frivolities of youth if they did not become too uproarious or antagonistic to discipline. When they did, he had but one word of rebuke. Mr. Crocker, I will not have it. Beyond that, he had never been known to go in the way either of reporting the misconduct of his subordinates to other superior powers, or in quarrelling with the young men himself. Even with Mr. Crocker, who no doubt was troublesome, he contrived to maintain terms of outward friendship. His name was Jerningham, and next to Mr. Jerningham in age came Mr. Crocker, by whose ill-timed witticisms our George Roden was not unfrequently made to suffer. This had sometimes gone so far that Roden had contemplated the necessity of desiring Mr. Crocker to assume that a bond of enmity had been established between them, or, in other words, that they were not to speak 
except on official subjects. That there had been an air of importance about such a proceeding, of which Crocker hardly seemed to be worthy, and Roden had abstained, putting off the evil hour from day to day, but still conscious that he must do something to stop the vulgarities which were distasteful to him. The two other young men, Mr. Bobbin and Mr. Geraghty, who sat at a table by themselves, and were the two junior clerks in that branch of the office, were pleasant and good-humoured enough. They were both young, and, as yet, not very useful to the Queen. They were apt to come late to their office, and impatient to leave it, when the hour of four drew nigh. There would sometimes come a storm through the department, moved by an unseen but powerful and unsatisfied Aeolus, in which Bobbin and Geraghty would be threatened to be blown into infinite space. Minutes would be written, and rumors spread about. Punishments would be inflicted, and it would be given to be understood that now one and then the other would certainly have to return to his disconsolate family at the very next offense. There was a question at this very moment whether Geraghty, who had come from the sister island about twelve months since, should not be returned to King's County. No doubt he had passed the civil service examiners with distinguished applause, but Aeolus hated the young Crichtons, who came to him with full marks, and had declared that Geraghty, though no doubt a linguist, a philosopher, and a mathematician, was not worth his salt as a post-office clerk. But he and Bobbin also were protected by Mr. Jerningham, and were well liked by George Roden. That Roden was intimate with Lord Hampstead had become known to his fellow clerks. The knowledge of this association acted somewhat to his advantage, and somewhat to his injury. His daily companions could not but feel a reflected honor in their own intimacy with the friend of the eldest son of a marquis, and were anxious to stand well with one who lived in such high society. Such was natural, but it was natural also that envy should show itself in ridicule, and that the lord should be thrown in the clerk's teeth when the clerk should be deemed to have given offense. Crocker, when it first became certain that Roden passed much of his time in company with a young lord, had been anxious enough to foregather with the fortunate youth who sat opposite to him. But Roden had not cared much for Crocker's society, and hence it had come to pass that Crocker had devoted himself to jeers and witticisms. Mr. Jerningham, who in his very soul respected a marquis, and felt something of genuine awe for anything that touched the peerage, held his fortunate junior in unfeigned esteem from the moment in which he became aware of the intimacy. He did in truth think better of the clerk, because the clerk had known how to make himself a companion to a lord. He did not want anything for himself, he was too old and settled in life to be desirous of new friendships. He was naturally conscientious, gentle, and unassuming. But Roden rose in his estimation, and Crocker fell 
when he became assured that Roden and Lord Hampstead were intimate friends, and that Crocker had dared to jeer at the friendship. A lord is like a new hat. The one on the arm, the other on the head, are no evidences of mental superiority. But yet they are taken, and not incorrectly taken, as signs of merit. The increased esteem shown by Mr. Jerningham for Roden should, I think, be taken as showing Mr. Jerningham's good sense and general appreciation. The two lads were both on Roden's side. Roden was not a rose, but he lived with a rose, and the lads, of course, liked the scent of roses. They did not particularly like Crocker, though Crocker had a dash about him, which would sometimes win their flattery. Crocker was brave and impudent and self-assuming. They were not as yet sufficiently advanced in life to be able to despise Crocker. Crocker imposed upon them, but should there come anything of real warfare between Crocker and Roden, there could be no doubt but that they would side with Lord Hampstead's friend. Such was the state of the room at the post office when Crocker entered it on the morning of Lord Hampstead's visit to Paradise Row. Crocker was a little late. He was often a little late, a fact of which Mr. Jerningham ought to have taken more stringent notice than he did. Perhaps Mr. Jerningham rather feared Crocker. Crocker had so read Mr. Jerningham's character as to have become aware that his senior was soft and perhaps timid, he had so far advanced in this reading as to have learned to think that he could get the better of Mr. Jerningham by being loud and impudent. He had no doubt hitherto been successful, but there were those in the office who believed that the day might come when Mr. Jerningham would rouse himself in his wrath. "'Mr. Crocker, you are late,' said Mr. Jerningham. Mr. Jerningham, I am. I scorn false excuses. Garrity would say that his watch was wrong. Bobbin would have eaten something that had disagreed with him. Roden would have been detained by his friend, Lord Hampstead. To this Roden made no reply, even by a look. For me, I have to acknowledge that I did not turn out when I was called. Of twenty minutes I have deprived my country, but as my country values so much of my time at only sevenpence halfpenny, it is hardly worth saying much about it. You are frequently late. When the amount has come up to ten pound, I will send the postmaster general stamps to that amount. He was now standing at his desk opposite to Roden, to whom he made a low bow. Mr. George Roden, he said, I hope that his lordship is quite well. The only lord with whom I am acquainted is quite well, but I do not know why you should trouble yourself about him. I think it becoming in one who takes the queen's pay to show a becoming anxiety as to the queen's aristocracy. I have the greatest respect for the Marquis of Kingsbury. Have not you, Mr. Jerningham? Certainly I have but if you would go to your work instead of talking so much, it would be better for everybody. I am at my work already, 
Do you think that I cannot work and talk at the same time? Bobbin, my boy, if you would open that window, do you think it would hurt your complexion? Bobbin opened the window. Patty, Patty, where were you last night? Patty was Mr. Garrity. I was dining then with my sister's mother-in-law. What, the O'Kelly, the great legislator and home ruler, whom his country so loves and Parliament so hates? I don't think any home ruler's relative ought to be allowed into the service. Do you, Mr. Jerningham? I think Mr. Garrity, if he will only be a little more careful, will do a great credit to the service, said Mr. Jerningham. I hope that Aeolus may think the same. Aeolus was the name by which a certain pundit was known at the office, a violent and imperious secretary, but not in the main ill-natured. Aeolus, when last I heard of his opinion, seemed to have his doubts about poor Patty. This was a disagreeable subject, and it was felt by them all that it might better be left in silence. From that time the work of the day was continued with no more than moderate interruptions till the hour of luncheon, when the usual attendant entered with the usual mutton-chops. "'I wonder if Lord Hampstead has mutton-chops for luncheon?' asked Crocker. "'Why should he not?' asked Mr. Jerningham, foolishly. There must be some kind of gilded cutlet upon which the higher members of the aristocracy regale themselves. I suppose, Roden, you must have seen his lordship at lunch. I dare say I have, said Roden, angrily. He knew that he was annoyed, and was angry with himself at his own annoyance. Are they golden, or only gilded? asked Crocker. I believe you mean to make yourself disagreeable, said the other. Quite the reverse. I mean to make myself agreeable. Only you have soared so high of late that ordinary conversation has no charms for you. Is there any reason why Lord Hampstead's lunch should not be mentioned? Certainly there is, said Roden. Then upon my life I cannot see it. If you talked of my midday chop, I should not take it amiss. I don't think a fellow should ever talk about another fellow's eating unless he knows the fellow. This came from Bobbin, who intended it well, meaning to fight the battle for Roden as well as he knew how. Most sapient Bob, said Crocker, you seem to be unaware that one young fellow, who is Roden, happens to be the peculiarly intimate friend of the other fellow, who is the Earl of Hampstead. Therefore, the law, as so clearly laid down by yourself, has not been infringed. To return to our muttons, as the Frenchman says, what sort of lunch does his lordship eat? You are determined to make yourself disagreeable, said Roden. I appeal to Mr. Jerningham whether I have said anything unbecoming. If you appeal to me, I think you have said Mr. Jerningham. You have at any rate been so successful in doing it, continued Roden, that I must ask you to hold your tongue about Lord Hampstead. It has not been by anything I have said that you have heard of my acquaintance with him. The joke is a bad one, 
and will become vulgar if repeated. Vulgar? cried Crocker, pushing away his plate and rising from his chair. I mean ungentlemanlike. I don't want to use hard words, but I will not allow myself to be annoyed. Hoity-toity, said Crocker. Here's a row because I made a chance allusion to a noble lord. I am to be called vulgar because I mentioned his name. Then he began to whistle. Mr. Crocker, I will not have it, said Mr. Jerningham, assuming his most angry tone. You make more noise in the room than all the others put together. Nevertheless, I do wonder what Lord Hampstead has had for his lunch. This was the last shot, and after that the five gentlemen did in truth settle down to their afternoon's work. When four o'clock came, Mr. Jerningham, with praiseworthy punctuality, took his hat and departed. His wife and three unmarried daughters were waiting for him at Islington, and, as he was always in his seat punctually at ten, he was justified in leaving it punctually at four. Crocker swaggered about the room for a minute or two with his hat on, desirous of showing that he was by no means affected by the rebukes which he had received. But he too soon went, not having summoned courage to recur to the name of Roden's noble friend. The two lads remained for the sake of saying a word of comfort to Roden, who still sat writing at his desk. "'I thought it was very low form,' said Bobbin. "'Crocker going on like that?' Crocker's a paste, said Garrity. What was it to him what anybody eats for his lunch? continued Bobbin. Only he likes to have a nobleman's name in his mouth, said Garrity. I think it's the height of bad manners talking about anybody's friends unless you happen to know them yourself. I think it is, said Roden, looking up from his desk. But I'll tell you what shows worse manners that is, a desire to annoy anybody. Crocker likes to be funny, and he thinks there is no fun so good as what he calls taking a rise. I don't know that I'm very fond of Crocker, but it may be as well that we should all think no more about it. Upon this the young men promised that they, at least, would think no more about it, and then took their departure. George Roden soon followed them, for it was not the practice of anyone in that department to remain at work long after four o'clock. Roden, as he walked home, did think more of the little affair than it deserved, more at least than he would acknowledge that it deserved. He was angry with himself for bearing it in mind, and yet he did bear it in mind. Could it be that a creature so insignificant as Crocker could annoy him by a mere word or two? But he was annoyed, and did not know how such annoyance could be made to cease. If the man would continue to talk about Lord Hampstead, there was nothing by which he could be made to hold his tongue. He could not be kicked or beaten or turned out of the room. For any purpose of real assistance, Mr. Jerningham was useless. As to complaining to the Aeolus of the office that a certain clerk would talk about Lord Hampstead, that, of course, was out of the question. 
he had already used strong language, calling the man vulgar and ungentlemanlike. But if a man does not regard strong language, what further can an angry victim do to him? Then his thoughts passed on to his connection with the Marquis of Kingsbury's family generally. Had he not done wrong, at any rate done foolishly, in thus moving himself out of his own sphere? At the present moment Lady Frances was nearer to him even than Lord Hampstead, was more important to him and more in his thoughts. Was it not certain that he would give rise to misery rather than to happiness by what had occurred between him and Lady Frances? Was it not probable that he had embittered for her all the life of the lady whom he loved? He had assumed an assured face and a confident smile while declaring to his mother that no power on earth should stand between him and his promised wife, that she would be able to walk out from her father's hall and marry him as certainly as might the housemaid or the ploughman's daughter go to her lover. But what would be achieved by that if she were to walk out only to encounter misery? The country was so constituted that he and these Traffords were in truth of a different race. As much so as the negro is different from the white man. The post office clerk may indeed possibly become a duke, whereas the negro's skin cannot be washed white. But while he and Lady Frances were as they were, the distance between them was so great that no approach could be made between them without disruption. The world might be wrong in this. To his thinking the world was wrong. But while the facts existed, they were too strong to be set aside. He could do his duty to the world by struggling to propagate his own opinions, so that the distance might be a little lessened in his own time. He was sure that the distance was being lessened, and with this he thought that he ought to have been contented. The jeering of such a one as Crocker was unimportant, though disagreeable, but it sufficed to show the feeling. Such a friendship as his with Lord Hampstead had appeared to Crocker to be ridiculous. Crocker would not have seen the absurdity unless others had seen it also. Even his own mother saw it. Here in England it was accounted so foolish a thing that he, a post office clerk, should be hand in glove with such a one as Lord Hampstead, that even a crocker could raise a laugh against him. What would the world say when it should become known that he intended to lead Lady Frances to the hymeneal altar? As he repeated the words to himself, there was something ridiculous even to himself in the idea that the hymeneal altar should ever be mentioned in reference to the adventures of such a person as George Roden, the post-office clerk. Thinking of all this, he was not in a happy frame of mind when he reached his home in Paradise Row. End of Section 7 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina